Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode is brought to you by The Bookshelf, Pizza Trocadero, and Planet Bean Coffee, Three fine businesses located in Guelph, Ontario, Canada. Jay Ryan is a respected and prolific screen print poster artist who is based just outside of Chicago, Illinois. He's been making screen printed concert posters for some of the world's greatest bands and musicians and festivals for over 20 years. And he runs his own print shop called The Bird Machine. He has served as vice president of the American Poster Institute, and he's been hailed as a cultural hero by Time Out Chicago. Akashic Books has just published No One Told Me Not To Do This, the third volume of Ryan's work, annotating and compiling selected screen prints created between 2009 and 2015. I first obtained one of Ryan's prints when I went to see Fugazi Shellac and Blonde Redhead play the Congress Theater in Chicago, on Friday, May 8th, 1998, and collected two more of his prints on subsequent trips to that city in 2001 and 2006. As it turns out, I bought them directly from him. I'm a fan, so Jay and I arranged to chat about his work a couple of weeks ago. So here it is, myself and Jay Ryan talking about No One Told Me Not To Do This on Creative Control. So, first of all, how are you, Jay? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, we've got a, a surprise little bit of sleety snow here in, uh, outside of Chicago, and it's definitely winter. And uh, But things are going well. Good. It's nice to have you on this show. You, you, you mentioned you're, you're living in Chicago. How long have you been in Chicago? I grew up in the area. I've spent most of my life here, a sort of outside and inside Chicago. I was born in a little town in Missouri that nobody's ever heard of called Ferguson. But um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I spent most of the rest of my life after that sort of, uh, well, definitely in Illinois. And um, um, I live in a, a suburb near the city called Evanston. So, Right. Uh, now, I, I must go back to your upbringing in Ferguson. Obviously, this is a hotbed. It's a... 
it has become a politicized city. Was it uh, was it a safe place to grow up in? Did you did you feel comfortable there? Was it was it was there racial tension when you were there? We left before I was sentient at all. So uh, I was there. Uh, my dad had a job there, um, but we left um, Ferguson by the time I well, I don't think I was three yet. So um, uh, I've. Very, very. I actually do have a couple of memories of the the place we lived, but um, I don't really have any. There was not any social awareness going on at that age. Yeah, it was it was one of those uh, surprised to see, you know, familiar names and familiar places to my parents showing up in the news. So, yeah, I can imagine. So you felt connected but distant from the the news cycle at that time. I didn't feel any particular connection to the place, um, uh, but um, definitely sensitive about everything that uh, that happened and the reaction and and um, just uh, <laughs> not. I didn't really expect to to go down like ra- <laughs> racial tension. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, sure. Sorry, I, I didn't. Today. I didn't. I didn't. Um, I didn't yeah. realize that you 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 know you had roots there, and I I didn't yeah. either. To be honest, it was not my plan. But I, I just was asking <laughs> because uh, certainly the social and political climate of your country begs these kinds of questions, and the fact that you you mentioned you are from Ferguson. That's all. I mean, I, I yeah. didn't expect an in depth uh, analysis of the situation. So don't fret. Yeah. Oh, thank thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I you know these kinds of questions are kind of establishing questions. You mentioned you've lived in Chicago most of your life or outside of Chicago. You're in the, from the area. Can you talk about the impact of the city on your practice, uh, both as a as a geographic landscape and, I, I suppose, as a social space, as a community? Yeah. I think that being in Chicago for my adult life has been uh, um, very important to me. Uh, I moved to Chicago soon after. I, I went to school in Champaign, uh, Illinois, which is about two and a half hours south of Chicago, big state school, um, graduated in 94 and and within about six months, most of my friends who finished school around that same time had all moved to Chicago. Um, there's still a lot of connection to Champaign and a lot of back and forth. Um, but, um, a lot of my friends from school moved to Chicago. There was obviously a, a rich, uh, music community here. And, um, being in a place where there's a lot going on culturally and musically, um, as I stumbled into making concert posters, um, uh, was like a, a great place to be. I don't know that the same thing would have worked out if I'd been, um, either in a place where there are fewer bands or in a place where the cost of, uh, cost of living, um, and the culture was, was more prohibitive to being able to uh, you know, stumble around basically figuring figuring out how to do this type of work. Um, there was a as I got into poster making uh, late '95, early 1996. Um, There's a already a, an active group of people working uh, with Steve Walters at Screwball Press, mm-hmm. and uh, had a lot of ties to Lounge X and the Empty Bottle, uh, the Metro, and other. Uh, club uh rock clubs in chicago a lot of the people who were making posters were in bands and um soon after i got in in there uh crosshair press opened uh sort of uh, a couple miles south that was uh 
some friends from Oberlin who also all played rock music. But to be able to have like a huge empty raw space for not a lot of money and um, have no shortage of, of uh, sh- you know shows to go to or um, make posters for, I think those were key ingredients. When you, I I don't know how much traveling you've done, uh, having spent so much time in Illinois, so I don't know how much time you've you've spent traveling around the world or around your own country, but when you speak to other artists uh, or or other, uh, whatever their background is, and you talk about Chicago, do you have a sense of what their impression of the city is? Do you have a sense of whether what you have there as a, a member of the community, as an artist, do you get the impression that they think you're you you have something special going on living in Chicago? I think Chicago is special but not unique um as far as a combination a crossover between music and art. I think that a lot of the same ingredients at the time would have been found in Minneapolis or Austin or uh Portland places where there are schools with people coming out of schools with uh arts degrees basically um able to get inexpensive space, um, not maybe, um, under, uh, sort of like major label magnifying glass. Um, and, uh, as far as bands having time to develop and play and have local, local followings, um, good small clubs to play in. And, um, I think, you know, just a a number of ingredients, just people who want to work, um, and aren't necessarily trying to, um, attain some you know aren't trying to attain stardom or whatever they're just trying to make make good work and have fun with what they're doing um i think that chicago is great for that um people you know people like like people running touch and go records or southern records or making posters or having a rock club like lounge acts or the empty bottle um or people coming out of the Art Institute and being able to get space where they can paint or whatever it is that they work on um, for a reasonable cost. I think those are all key ingredients. And I, I don't think that... I think that's that's available in other cities as well. Yeah, I think I, I think you've touched upon something pretty interesting there where you, you, you say it's not under a, a particular magnifying glass, but in terms of metropolitan cities, it's a stopover. It's a place that people want to hit. So you end up... If if it's it's I'm I'm not sure it's anyone's particular goal there to network, but you do meet people living in Chicago from all over the country, right? Yeah, yeah. If if a band is going on tour and they're covering any amount of distance, Chicago is going to be one of the places they stop, just simply because of the the fact that there are places to play and the, the fact that the population is so large. Um, yeah, and then sub- subsequently you might end up working with people who are traveling through and, and hear of you or. or, or so to speak. I mean, maybe that's, maybe there's not a direct correlation there, but I'm sure that probably helps, you know, like maybe, maybe people want to check out your print shop or something like that. Exactly. I think that, you know, the fact that, um, I, I was very fortunate to kind of stumble into this at a time where there were a lot fewer people making posters. Um, there were enough people make working in Chicago uh, and who are aware of people who had who had been doing this work for a while, like say Frank Kozik or Art Chantry or Derek Hess or Coop, for example, um, that like the, the understanding of what a po- poster was 
um, and its value uh, were that was understood, that was established, um, and yet the <laughs> the number of people making this kind of work was not what it is today, and there were there were fewer um, there were fewer print shops, there were fewer people doing this type of work, and just I think like uh, just that that in being established in a place like this at the time uh, was was pretty pretty fortuitous, pretty lucky uh, place for me to land. It's intriguing to me that you, you talk about the practice kind of expanding when we are so often inundated with information about various cultural practices being kind of decimated or devalued. Do you have a, a sense of why screen printing and poster making is on the rise in terms of production? And uh, as you say, it's grown uh, exponentially since you started. Yeah, I'm not sure that I can say that specifically at, at this point, but I think that there's been a, a um, growth that's inversely proportional to decline in record sales, um, people wanting a physical object, um, mm. bands are touring, and um, I think that uh, bands like to have um, merchandise that's specific to a show, Um I think that uh, revenue-wise, a lot of bands are needing to make up for decreased record sale record sales. I think the role of the poster has shifted to some degree in the last ten something years, um, where it's become less important as a promotional tool, more important as um, what if I call them. Uh, maybe like memorabilia or merchandise. Sure, I'm not sure. I like that using that word memorabilia. I won't say that memorabilia <laughs> is making Jimi Hendrix posters in in 2017. You're you're wary of describing something new as an artifact already. Yeah, I. It's a physical um, object that's linked to an event, but since since at least the way that I work or the way most people that I, most of my peers work is, you know, we're making a limited number of the posters. They're, they're made once. They don't get remade. So we're not making a bottomless pit of, uh, you know, an, an endless queue of, um, Melvin's posters or low posters or, or whoever it is. Um, but it's, so it's somewhat tied to the, 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 the event, the, um, the act of being involved in the the event. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but No, it does. And I, I want to get back to your the, the kind of finite nature of your work um in in a little bit, but I thought it might be interesting to just ask you when the last time you created a a screen print poster was and and what was it? Can you talk about that? It's been a couple of weeks at this point. Um we we're we're recording this at the beginning of January. I've um had a couple of posters that I made for Andrew Bird going into the holidays. Uh, I think one of my favorites that I made last year was one of the last ones I made for the last year. It's for Andrew playing uh, an event he does annually called Gazellekite here in Chicago. There's a the Fourth Presbyterian Church is this um, Gothic cathedral, neo-Gothic maybe, neo-Gothic cathedral down on mm-hmm. Michigan Avenue in the middle of the city. And uh, so he plays a um, basically a solo acoustic um, event 
there annually that's sort of I don't want to say it's holiday themed but it's somewhat somewhat more um, uh, a little bit more of an introverted set as opposed to a as opposed to being a rock concert right and um, so that was uh, I made uh, sort of a wintry um, image with a bunch of bare trees that I was particularly fond of I think it worked out well um, those were those shows were in the middle of December right you and Andrew have quite an affinity for one another and uh, you have a long rela- sort of working relationship yeah we uh, we met early in both of our careers I think I want to say it was 96 it was just before his first record came out Music of Hair um, he came he was getting his uh, CD jackets printed at Fireproof Press which was adjacent to Screwball Press and he mentioned to John Upchurch at Fireproof Fireproof Press that he wanted to get um, posters made as well and I happened to be walking through the room at that point and uh, just basically got to um, got involved in making some posters for Andrew and uh, so we've been we've been friends for Twenty years at this point, so it was kind um, of happenstance. Yeah, that's well, it's that's how a lot of friendships start. But um, <laughs> yeah, when I named my company the Bird Machine in 1999, um, that was not. I mean, I mean, Andrew. Well, he's always been great. Um, it was not like a a nationally known name uh, at that point, and I was more naming the company after um, a variety of minor influences. I just read uh, Haruki Murakami's Wind Up Bird Chronicles. Uh, My wife is sort of an amateur ornithologist. Um, We had a bunch of, like, small reasons to to name the company that, but but Andrew Bird was not one of them. Well, yeah, you do have a... You have some trademarks, I suppose, bicycles and, and sort of invented animals and real animals that these things all appeal to you just something about the you're an, are you an outdoors guy <laughs> um i'm a, a failed outdoors guy i do i do enjoy camping uh bike trips when i can um we try to camp a handful of times a year bikes are are fun to draw as far as being a complex uh a complex shape that's hard to draw correctly yeah and yeah. so, getting the geometry down in a believable way is uh, is is fun to do. Um, the animals um, sort of act as protagonists in a lot of my posters. Um, they have to do. I think I came to the realization recently. It's that really what the animals are is they're more like they're verbs, um, as opposed to the poster being about um, who is on who is doing the action it's more about what the action is that's happening whether it's falling down or flying through the air or making toast um and it's all about uh, as soon as that animal becomes a person then it's like well is is it a male or female is it what are they wearing what are the, what's the hair haircut um what's the ethnicity um am i you know there's a whole lot of baggage that's tied to that and there are places for that certainly occasionally in my work but for the most part it's not that I want to have you know a young man crashing a bike uh, it's that I just want there's a bike crash and it 
happens to be a raccoon crashing right the bike. um <laughs> That's pretty yeah. much it. I mean, they're, they're, they're clearly, uh, you know, these are products of yours. In some cases, they're wholly invented from your imagination. I mean, I have, I have three of your prints in my house, and um, the, the one of the fir- the first one I bought was in Chicago, and it's uh, it was at the uh, independent uh, music f- independent music fair. I think it was. Oh, wow. It was the Congress Theater, and it was Fugazi and Shellac, and uh, on that that show was Blonde Redhead. Yeah. And yeah. uh, so there's these, uh, it's like four or five or six yeah, animals. Five, five dogs, yeah. They're, dogs, they're, right, yeah. They're sort yeah. of, uh, air quotes, dogs, sort of loosely loosely recognizable as dogs. Um, yeah, yeah. Our, our mutual friend Steve Albini once referred to the animals as undifferentiated mammals, meaning <laughs> like the idea that you, um, they're clearly mammals, they clearly have fur, They've got the basic physiology of something between a um, you know a primate and a, <laughs> a dog and a squirrel somewhere in there, um, but they they aren't specifically you know a marmot. Um, right. Joking, I will I will joke jokingly refer to them as marmots or wombats when they're um, sort of in that vague area, but. Um, Sometimes they're very obviously, you know, this is obviously a bear. That's very obviously a cat, and you can tell because it's got pointy ears and a triangular nose and a yeah. long, skin, skinny tail. But most of the time, it's just this is a mammal. And, yeah, and it works. <laughs> Which is a great, uh, you know, that's a great extension of your power as an artist to to basically, you know, conjure these mammals uh, out of out of in some cases they're just out of thin air, really. It's uh, their physiology has kind of taken this long, strange bit of development where uh, they actually started out as ottomans uh, that I was painting in my undergrad. Um, I started out drawing these ottoman, like an ottoman that you might have in front of a chair. Yeah, it's basically sure. this loafy shape with these four little peg legs. I think I drew a couple of those at one point, and then at some point, one grew a tail, one had a butthole. And um, eventually they uh, got ears and and then uh, developed heads and uh, became more like dogs. I think that's <laughs> how I remember the, the evolutionary <laughs> process happening in the fine early. line between furniture and pets, I suppose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now I we've talked uh, about different aspects of your work, but for those who don't know, what, what exactly, by your definition, is green printing in relation to other forms of visual art? What are its major distinctions? And, and within that, how did this become your medium of choice? Um, screen printing is a, an old technology that has largely been unchanged in the last century, maybe half century. Um, the process as it's done right now in my shop would be definitely recognizable to somebody who is printing World War II propaganda posters um, or WPA screen prints in, in those workshops um, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, the idea is that it's we're, we're fitting into this, from an economy standpoint, we're fitting in the place where you want something that's of a particular size that's not 8.5 by 11. Uh, most of the work that I do is 18 by 24 mm-hmm. uh, inches. The we're looking at a volume more than 
just printing five of something and yet not printing 10,000 of something. So most of the additions that I make are in the several hundred range, two, three, four hundred pieces. Um, and uh, as far as what screen printing is, we have an image that's broken down into different colors. Let's say that I've got an image of a, a man wearing pants and... Um, and uh, yeah, let's just say man wearing pants. That's simple enough. We've got a background <laughs> color, sure. the the man's the man's color, and then the pants color, um, and then the outlines, the shape of the the shape of the the drawing. Um, so that would be four different screens that I might use. Uh, each of the screens, it's hard to describe in a podcast, but uh, the idea is that let's see, screen being basically a metal frame or wooden frame stretched on one side with a synthetic polyfiber mesh used to be silk which is why it's called silk screen printing right this has been coated with a um, photo emulsion which is used to create an area a stencil shape Uh, open mesh is the shape that we want to print the rest of the screen is closed off with a plasticky surface and so if I were to put a piece of paper down on a table lay a screen on top of the paper and then put ink on the screen and pull it across the open space with a squeegee, the ink would go through the stencil in the shape that we want to print. So my first color might be the shape of the man's pants printed in blue. Uh, Next would be the shape of the rest of the man Um, that might be printed in green or red. The shape of the background would be a third screen and then I'd lay, then I'd, the fourth screen would be the shape of all the lines, uh, the outlines around the man, defining his edges, defining his pants. Um, and that's the simplified version. But um, that was that was great. That was a good, uh, you know, oral tutorial. <laughs> <laughs> I've had opportunities, you know, it, thankfully, it, to talk about this a lot. So, but right, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we're making, let's say, a hundred pieces, a hundred prints of this man wearing pants. We would go through and we'd print on, we'd print pants, the first color, the first screen, on all 100 pieces. So then we'd have 100 pieces of paper with pants on them. Then we'd go back with a different screen some number of hours later and print skin tone, or whatever it is that we're going to call that, on all 100 pieces one at a time. And so one of the misunderstandings is people say, oh, well, I really wish I had that poster from that show I went to back in 97 when we saw Fugazi and Shellac at the Congress Theater, can't you just print one more for me? And so there's a sort of often a misunderstanding that we're just kind of going command P and then the, the poster comes out from the printer mm-hmm. on the other side of the room. But um, aside from, in my opinion, being unethical, uh, the, the process is much more complex than just being able to print one more. Well, technically, that, technically it's possible. But um, it's not like so. In, in a sense, the, the the prints I have, the posters you make, they're essentially each one of a kind. I mean, they're you know they're, they're you do a run of them, but they they're kind of each their own in, individual thing. They haven't been mass produced to be identical. They they are each an original. Um, there is no, there's not a single one of which those are duplicates. There's a, an original drawing in that particular case of the poster that you mentioned. There's a drawing in my flat file here that's five different dog drawings that are all taped together. 
um, and a different piece of paper has the band names written on them. Right. But they did not exist until all of them existed. As far as the po- the posters didn't exist until all of the posters existed. Right. So, it is. A, it is somewhat. Yeah. And so when you're when you're reproducing them, so to speak, well, I guess you are. You're reproducing them as you do a run of them. There can be some of them will, might have you know some of these individual posters might have an error. There might be a uh, some kind of uh, textual overlay that is sort of unintentional. It's a detail. This is because of this process, I assume, that the, yeah. the, the, they're not errors, they're just the, the natural, the way things went down organically, I suppose. We, uh, we, we like to refer to that as the inherent charm of the process. Oh, it's got a <laughs> thumbprint on it? Well, that's the inherent charm of the process. If right. you wanted it perfect, you shouldn't have had it screen printed. Yeah, I, I guess that's part of how I consider what I do as, as like a craft. There are definitely marks of human error involved. Um, they may be very minor. I may be the only one who sees them, or maybe they're very obvious and everybody sees them, but I appreciate that this is a, a thing that's handmade, whether it's mine or whether it's something made by one of my friends. Um, it's, a, it's an object that's got physical properties, and some of those are minor imperfections sometimes. But this is not to imply that you have some low standard of quality control. It's quite the opposite, right? Um, I'm I'm a rather forgiving printmaker. Uh, some of my peers are much better, much more detail-oriented, and that shows in their work as far as their level of precision and their level of um, the high uh, standard they hold their work to. While I do respect what it is that I do, and I have fun doing it, I'm making pictures of, you know, goats falling down the stairs. We're not talking about something that needs to be without a stray dot of ink or a stray, you know, scratch mark or anything like that. This is, uh, I think, particularly when you when you look at the, the way that I draw and how sloppy things can be, um, I think that the process and the fact that screen printing as a process is part of the character of the piece, um, I don't think that needs to be hidden. Right. So. You've worked with independent musicians and artists. You've worked with major companies who, you know, they might sell wine. They might have put out a Wes Anderson film, you know, different levels of demands, I assume. What's the ideal dynamic between yourself and a poster client? Do you prefer autonomy or direction or some balance of both? Some, some balance of both. I think that sometimes... It can be difficult when a client comes with a very specific idea. And if somebody comes to me with a very specific idea, an overly specific idea, it doesn't, um, it's hard for me to match what's in their head. And I, at the same time, am not able to work out how I'm envisioning the process, the, pr- the project going. So um, that I don't feel is really the best way to work. Some of my favorite clients, the bands that I've gotten to work for a lot, or people like uh, Shellac, for example, or Andrew Bird, where I'll just sort of be given the lightest bit of direction as far as that post we were mentioning earlier for the Gazellekite shows. Um, the art direction was that they wanted to focus on it being winter and sort of a, a cozy sort of feeling in winter. So that was a, a good one. Um, I've done work for Shellac where the art direction I've gotten was astronaut or 
we're going to Australia, so can we have some Australian animals? Or, you know, um, or I'd really love it if this tape machine could be involved. But beyond that, it's it's left to me. That's I th- also the as clients, somebody like Shellac has a great sense of humor and is good to work with that way because you know that whatever sort of weird minor detail you might I might put in there, they're gonna hopefully think it's it's funny and go with it as well. So. What about your your own sensibility in terms of humor? Where, where does your sense of humor emanate from? Do you have particular uh, favorites in terms of comedy? I, I this was on my mind just because we had, Christmas was last week, two weeks ago, two weeks yeah. ago, and uh, I have a thirteen year old nephew, and I bought him Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which he'd never read before. But I remember being fourteen and reading this these books and. Um, yeah. It was the first time that I ever literally stayed up all night, overnight, laughing, um, reading, and just and laughing to myself, and um, just sort of the sense of the absurd, the sense of the non sequitur, um, and I think that that probably I, I've never really actually talked about this before. That's probably um, rooted in Monty Python, like British comedy, but. Not something that I've I've never spent a whole load of time um, with Monty Python stuff, but I think that same type of uh, absurdist, like I said, sort of non sequitur humor um, has probably informed my own decision making skills in in making imagery. Um, you, you have you have something of a penchant for the absurd. I I hope so. I hope I still have that. There's a, there's a point. If we're, since since I'm talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a point where I'll try and make it short, but basically there's there's an improbability factor that's happening, and so things that are improbable are happening. And at one point, a sperm whale and a bowl of petunias pop into existence high above a planet and just right. start plummeting down. And that that concept of that just being a completely unexpected thing in the narrative that has nothing to do with anything else and then following it through all to to its gravitational end like that just was completely blew my mind as a 14 year old like this is hilarious this makes no sense at all um and yet here it is fully explained and uh that was that was big for me um that that sort of humor um and so that's i think where you know, I've got a group of animals jumping in a poster recently, and they all, for some reason, have thumbs. Um, like, why does why do all these why does the horse have thumbs, and why do the fish have thumbs? Um, thinking back to an earlier poster, um, uh, June of forty four, uh, from like nineteen ninety six, I think. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Like, mm-hmm. oh, it's a ship direct. It looks like shipwrecked Vikings. Uh, oh wait, why is this one guy sitting on a crate, floating in the ocean, typing on a typewriter? Um, <laughs> just, which is not in and of itself funny, except in the context of the rest of what's going on. Like, why is why is that there? So um, it's it's funny to. Uh, this is just my own. This is where I'm coming from. You're talking about Monty Python and Douglas Adams and improbability, and I couldn't help but think of gary larson actually on oh, the far side yes absolutely uh yeah um when the far side started appearing in the chicago tribune in the early 80s i remember waiting for my dad to come home from work every day and i would take out the um i don't remember what the section was called it was basically the cultural section and that was uh i would take that out and i cut out the um the far side comics the single panels and so for a while there i had this big stack of clipped out far sides and that was before i knew there were books but that was probably i'm gonna guess that was i don't know like 82 83 wow somewhere in there Um, so that factoid kind of validates something about my impression of your work that's i've i've actually again never spoken about that in an interview before so thank you for bringing that up <laughs> i think it's there there's a comic sensibility uh, you know a few people in your this is uh, your third book now and in, in, in sort of contextualizing your work i think a few people have sat down uh, rather you know if they're writing forwards or just blurbs for you they're kind of analyzing what they think uh, your work is about and where you're coming from and there is this sense that you're you're a narrative designer like you you you're you're someone who's able to convey a story in 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 a, in a single work and that's i don't I, th- I think that's a rare you would know better than me i'm not a full on i appreciate art but i don't know uh, a lot about it but i do think that's a that seems to be a rare gift to convey so much uh, in uh, in in an image you know convey a story in an image that's Remarkable to me. Well, thank you for thank you for that. That that makes me feel really good about this. Um, I think that that's probably accurate. I I think going back to what we were talking about before is the animals as verbs. Um, I like to think that there's always something happening, whether it's these guys are pausing and not doing anything right now, but they just finished whatever it is they were doing the debris is here now or they're about to jump off this cliff ride a bike whatever it is some of my friends who make beautiful lovely work that i that i enjoy and i hang in my house i I feel like it's more diagrammatical it's not it's a picture of a thing as opposed to a picture like like a snapshot of a story I don't want to cite examples, but some of my very favorite posters are things that are just, it's a picture of something. Um, and 
those are great and there's totally a place for that but that's I've often felt like most of my work needed to be about something happening and um, that, that hasn't been a conscious decision that's been right. sort of reflecting on this when, when you when I get something like a book of work put together and kind of browse through it and realize like oh yeah a lot of stuff there's a lot of stuff falling down here or there are a lot of things growing up uh, through here or this guy is obviously feeling disappointed um, because he's alone or I don't know this this other this rabbit's got a lot of joy and optimism must be that coffee <laughs> he's holding so yeah I mean there's there's always a I think there's occasionally we mentioned the the the, the first poster of yours that I obtained the with the dogs or whatever they are and then mm-hmm. there's another one I, I got the in 2001 a similar type of show at the Congress Theater Fugazi Shellac and the X and it's a kind of disjointed bicycle uh, mm-hmm. that seems to be floating in space or, or falling from somewhere there's the touch and go 25th anniversary poster I have the one where if memory serves and, I, and you know it's funny I look at the thing I honestly look at these things every day <laughs> And I'm trying to now remember, but I feel like records, you're, you're celebrating the anniversary of a label, but as I recall, there's just records falling from a bridge into the water. Hmm. Is that right? I don't know about that one. That, okay, I might be I wrong think, about that one. No, I think that you're... Well, let's see. The Touch and Go 25th anniversary one was um, a long, wide green poster it was a part half of a diptych that i shared with my friend kathleen judge who does a lot of work or did a lot of work for the hideout and then i was doing a lot of stuff obviously for touch and go type bands and um so we chose to do a really wide span almost eight feet wide between the two posters of a section of the brown line l train in chicago that runs past the um, Touch and Go Records building in Ravenswood, where where it used to be. There, let's see. So we we kind of agreed on a composition and did mirror images of each other. And she interpreted her way, I did, interpreted my way, and you could put them together. And it was a quite a wide arrangement there. Um, the one I now from your description of a bunch of records, I'm wondering if it's confused with a a drawing I did of the Amtrak bridge on the south side. Yeah, that for, might be right. That might be right. For yeah. a, uh, a, an art show about four years ago, maybe three or four years ago. Well, there's two, as Something. I recall, when I was on site. And by the way, we, you and I may have. Were you on site at, at these shows selling your own posters? Yes, yes. I'm pretty sure we've met before in person. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you no, know, if you got those posters from those shows, that would have been from me. Right, so we had these brief interactions, and uh, as I recall, at the 25th anniversary of the at the the hideout sort of party or whatever, the touch and go party, there were actually two editions. Uh, there were two different posters. Yeah. And oh well. I, let's see. See, I took one of them home and I framed it. I had it framed, and it's 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 a huge poster. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, sort of green. Wish... And the the ones that I made for that were were 26 inches tall by 40 inches wide. Yeah, it's massive. So, okay. I would yes. say for my for my purposes it's a it's a massive one and i i'm sorry you know what i'll i'll send you a photo <laughs> of the poster after we're done 
Okay. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not at liberty to do that right now, and I can't see I it. But uh, all I was getting at is that there's a kind of there's humor there. There's a kind of uncertainty. There's certain peril going on, even as you're celebrating things. Yeah, I, I, I I'm glad that you're <laughs> recognizing that, and it's it's not often that I actually sit and tangibly think like, oh, that's that's exactly what we're doing. Um, I'm trying to like flip this open for flip open the book that we're talking about for reference. I feel like I, I as far as in concert posters, try and tie that action into something that I get from the band. Um, Here's here's a poster for the national. You know, while I was listening to the record, the bo- uh, the record boxer a lot, and I, I mm-hmm. just sort of I picture like there's everything in that album is happening to sort of this young New Yorker who wears sports coats and wears a tie and um, is out late at night, and uh, so we've got this sort of rabbit wearing a suit and a tie sort of tumbling through the night sky through a constellation of wine bottles and coffee mugs and wallets and pie um (laughs) this is stuff that you picked up on from the record basically yeah yeah and um or poster for jeff tweedy playing a, a house show basically auctions off used to off auction off house shows for charity um jeff tweedy he's this autumnal show as much of a handsome character as he is and and has a good a good interesting face i can i cannot draw him to make him look like himself so i've got him standing here playing his guitar except there's just this it's like somebody dumped a leaf bag over his head they've just raked up their all their orange and red leaves and just sort of dumped it over his head so his face is sort of obscured James Murphy from LCD Sound System as as a cosmonaut being probed by all these RCA cables coming in from out of the frame. He's looking somewhat concerned. Um, little Bub just being Little Bub. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, having that action in there is and trying to tie that in some way to the to the music is uh, what makes me feel like it's uh, an image is appropriate for a band. Well, you, you put so much care into your work, and and you know you do, you were describing the, I would describe it, I think, as an, a somewhat. I'm sure you don't. Fi- maybe you do some days. Maybe you don't find it to be an arduous process. But it's not a, it's not an easy process. What you do, and and it sort of speaks to why one of the reasons why I, I believe you, you create these finite numbered editions of your prints. Um, but I'm you know we live in a digital world. There are presets and all sorts of technological advances that people take advantage of. How has the advent of digital technology impacted you as an artist who creates tangible tactile art in, as you say, uh, in, a, in, a, in a manner that dates back, you know, a century almost now? For a long time, I prided myself on my sort of Luddite technology, I, I, you know, the period in the 90s where I didn't know how to turn on a computer. I, As a young child, I'd studied basic and I could program you know an Apple IIe to run graphics programs but mm-hmm. you know 20 years well let's see 20 years 50, I don't know anyway by the, the mid 90s I was completely computer illiterate and um, didn't feel like I needed that as a design tool and I was happy 
and still am happy drawing by hand with pencil on paper. And then the world around me has kind of changed, uh, as it always does. Um, one of the key types of photocopiers that I used as far as translating a pencil drawing on paper to a film positive that needs to be used for for the screen printing process, the, that type of photocopier basically has become harder and harder to find or to use. Um, so I had, at some point gave in and um, started scanning my pencil drawings into Photoshop. Um, I learned to do Photoshop in the mid-2000s where I had two projects I needed that just had to be done digitally. One was a cover of a Michael Chabon book, and the other one was a snowboard for Burton snowboards. Mm. And they needed, like, these just had to be done digitally, and so it was time for me to kind of bite the bullet and learn some Photoshop. Right. Um, everything's still rooted in a pencil drawing that just gets scanned in and then layers of color get added behind the pencil drawing. And that's the same, basically, the same way that I work now. While I can work from an entirely analog angle as far as uh, cutting, still cutting my films by hand with a knife, being able to scan a drawing into Photoshop and create textures create um, layers in a way that it would be possible to do by hand but uh, would certainly take exponentially more time to do Um, so using Photoshop as a tool in the process has been a big help for me Um, but it's uh, it's not like the main thing it's just it's another tool in the same way that my X-Acto knife or my pencil or my eraser might be it's just something you, yeah, you you pull it out when you need it, kind of thing. Yeah, and well, you know, I, at this point, I use it on most projects, but I, I feel like there's enough of a hand process, like the hand, the hand work is evident enough in there where I don't feel like the digital aspect is overruling it, or it's not the main focus of the image. I don't know if I'm misremembering this, but I, I feel like I read that your relationship to fonts kind of evolved at some point, right? Like you, you went from using sort of set or oh. template fonts to freehand. Is that what You're happened? You're right. You're right. You know what? Then that yes. Um, actually, I hadn't thought about that in a while. When I was um, learning to make posters early on, I would do a drawing, and then I was borrowing a computer from my friend Andy Andy Mueller who ran a design little design company called the Ohio Girl Company. And Andy, um, he's now out in L.A. He, he, um, he runs a, a clothing label called Quiet Life and runs Lakai Shoes. He's part of the Girl and Chocolate Skateboards company. And he's a great guy. He got me my first poster job um, in 95, and we went to college together. But I would basically I'd do a drawing, and then I'd go over to his office and type up whatever the text was that I needed, John Spencer Blue's explosion or whatever, in Quark, and then I'd try and pick a like a, a trade gothic or universe universe uh, or uh, Helvetica bold type font, um, print that out on paper, and then go with that paper and my drawing over to Kinko's to make these photocopies that I'd use for making the films. Um, after I don't know some small number of posters like that. I want to say, I want to say I only worked maybe 
15 or 20 prints where I worked that way with the text. Um, Art Chantry in Seattle, um, who's an influence on me, he um, he said, you know, your your typographic work is is terrible, but this this the hand drawing, the hand lettering is really good. You should you should try and stick with that. Right. And I said, oh, shut up, shut up. You you know, no, actually, no. I said uh, I took that to heart basically and stuck with the hand lettering and uh, tried to focus on that. And that's with very few exceptions. Um, most of the text that I've done for the last let's say 17, 18 years has all been hand-drawn. Well, it's beautifully distinctive writing, I think. Thank you. Um, I mean, I I, I think it's a real, another trademark of yours, frankly. It's, I like to sort of have the text be involved in the image and not necessarily just sitting on top of it. I've been, become kind of conscientious of recently and feeling like maybe I'm I haven't tried anything new text-wise in a little bit, so um, we'll oh. see if 2017 is the year where I start messing up my formula a little bit, but, <laughs> because it has become a little formulaic, I think. But um, not in a bad way, but I, I think I need to uh, need to stir it up a little bit and see, sure, yeah. see if I can find a new way to do some of the lettering. I also just really enjoy it. I also just really enjoy drawing letters. I, it's weird to be like... Here I am in my mid-40s, and I have strong opinions about packing tape and power washers and the fact that I really dislike drawing the letter W. Um, <laughs> you know, like, that's a, these are strange passions to have. Um, but that's, you know, I like diagramming, like, like drawing text is, uh, is very satisfying to me. Well, I was going to say, you know, frankly, it's, it's heartening to hear you talk about the fact that you know, you're self-aware of your practice and and wanting to to potentially, for lack of a better term, upgrade. Like you're not, there's no complacency here. And and one of the things that strikes me about these, like as I mentioned, no one told me not to do this. Is your third book now, chronicling your poster art. And as I read the books, I feel like they have a rather instructive quality to them. I know you teach screen printing as well. But uh, but it's it seems very conscientious on your part. What inspired this? I mean, it's based, it's like a pedagogical knowledge sharing aspect. Uh, the, the, that aspect exists in your practice. I'm just curious, what inspired that? Um, just to, to confirm, I don't actually have a teaching job as much as I do travel. Uh, universities bring me in um, around the country to come and lecture. I'll come and lecture for 24 hours. Um, do a workshop with students. Workshop, a, sorry, yeah. Workshop. I, yeah, right. I just don't want to give the, can, I'm not, I don't have a, a position at some university or anything like that. Would but, you like um, a position at a university? <laughs> uh, as I look at what's happening to our health insurance uh, in this country, the idea of a, a steady paycheck and, and health insurance is, is attractive. But right. um, no, I think at this point, I've got enough friends who are in universities that are having sort of bureaucratic issues enough that I'm I'm just glad I don't have to deal with some of those problems. But right. as, as far as sharing information, um, I think that's, a, that's part of what ended up sort of being one of my business principles, I guess, in hindsight, was that the idea that an educated audience was the best audience. And the fact that people see something, see an image on a piece of paper, and they imagine, they just expect, like, 
like I said before, like, oh, that's a thing that did in the computer, and then you do Command-P, and it comes out of the printer over on the other side of the room, and then you, there it is, and it's, oh, you want another one? Here's another one. Command-P, here it comes again. And to be able to show the process um, from walking around with an idea in my head to getting it on paper, maybe redrawing it, um, going through the whole process of coloring it, and um, and then the printing process, um, I think that people appreciate seeing that. So I've been, I, I think, relatively transparent in, in sharing what I've learned um, in the last 20 years or so in the same way that the people who taught me to screen print, Steve Walters, Bob Hartzell, at Screwball Press, they were you know very generous with their time and, and energy as far as teaching me how to print when I was... 23 i guess um yeah i I mean i i appreciate this aspect of paying it forward so to speak and and also trying to bolster the form and and you know make sure the form continues uh uh into the future at the same time i'm curious are you ever cognizant or conscious of people plagiarizing you of, of people knocking off j ryan prince has that ever occurred to you yeah, there are, there are a couple people who who make work that I think pull pull elements that I that I recognize from stylistic elements that I may have had in the past. But then again, it's hmm. not like I invented art or anything like this. It's you know I've got plenty of places that I've ripped off very badly. Um, <laughs> I mean, what I mean by that is done a terrible job of ripping off. So where I may try to you know where I may be inspired by something very heavily, and then I do a terrible job of replicating it, um, and that becomes my own. Um, and other people do the same. And I think there are some people that I've I've seen their work, whether it's um, you know in posters or, or or whatever, that maybe have been looking at my work, and and that's that's fine. They've got the, they make enough of it. They'll they'll find their own voice. Right. Exactly. Um, but I, it sounds to me like it's a a good mix of. Uh, being infuriating and flattering <laughs> when when someone rips off an idea that they think of yours is uh, you know of yours that they think is good. Yeah, I, well, it's I don't know if it's ideas as much as um, there can be stylistic decisions that were made. I'm I'm trying to think of something specific. I did just what did I see? Saw some uh, Swedish Norwegian or something student who had taken one of my the text off of one of my posters and, and designed a font with it wow for, for the, her grad school class I wasn't entirely comfortable with that because it's like well those are my letters and it's like well why didn't I make a font of it well it's because I didn't want it to be made into a font but what's your recourse there what do you do in that I mean what do you do it's <laughs> like I'm going to chase down a, a grad student in wherever she was, like Finland or something, um, over a project. I don't know. I mean, it's... Sounds like a fun road trip. Yeah, that's. it sounds great. If somebody wants to buy me a plane ticket, I'll go over there and yell at her and then, and then buy her coffee because um, I feel bad. Right. So, no, um, there has been a lot of, uh, in my field amongst my peers, there have been a lot of places where you, there gets to be uh, grand plagiarizing or... Or a Chinese factory discovers one of the poster nerd websites, and suddenly 
is making uh, wallets and t-shirts with images that my peers have made, my friends have made. Um, for some reason, I've been, thankfully, sort of, my work has never been attractive enough to people who do that <laughs> to right. to, uh, to really be uh, copied on any large scale. But uh, one of the upsides of the internet, one of the, the, the good sides is that the communication is such that any, like, noticed plagiarizing, like, gets noticed and called out loudly yeah, um, and quickly. And um, that, you know, thankfully the flow of information goes both ways. And, well, you might find, you know, somebody might, from the other side of the world, might rip you off. As soon as that works online, some one of your friends is going to notice it and call it out. So. Right. Yeah, I suppose that's true. We're all policing each other on some level. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we mentioned you have this print shop in Chicago called The Bird Machine. How, how does that function? Do you keep regular hours? Is it open to the general public? Can people pop by if they're in Chicago? It's it's not really – it's a workspace, so it's not really a retail space. Technically, I'm sitting right now in the office here in Skokie, Illinois, which is a near northern suburb. Um, not a particularly fancy place, but a, a good a good little village uh, adjacent to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, – there's not a whole lot going on in Skokie. Uh, it's kind of a weird place, but uh, it's there. Just a, a new art gallery opens just down the road called, I believe it's pronounced Mishkuki, um, run by a guy named John Maloof, who's a photographer um, involved in the Vivian Meyer estate. And um, there's a skateboard shop. There's a really great library, um, and uh, yeah, it's a good. It's a good place i live uh, in the next town over a town called evanston mm-hmm. um so anyway the print shop we've been here for 10 years 10 years nine and a half years um i got a little building it's about 1800 square feet it's just a storefront not open for like retail um situations i'm i people are welcome to um drop an email if if they're coming into town but we don't we try not to have um like people drop by uh, sure because i'm you know it's very uh likely we might be elbow deep in ink and uh, can't always drop what we're working on to give tours okay so no pop-ins let's just no be clear pop-ins, yeah um yeah. and uh but we always welcome if somebody says oh i really wanted to pick up that poster that particular poster can i swing by to avoid shipping uh, yeah, we can do that. So. Oh, I see. We, okay. Right. Yeah, but we can't always do like uh, we have some customers who will just sort of email and say, "Hey, I need X, Y, and Z. Can I come by at two o'clock?" And that's great. Yeah. Right. But, um, as long as we're not expected to be super social. So. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So. We're speaking on but, the occasion uh, of of the publication of this book. Uh, yeah. I'm curious. You know, often at this point, uh, as, as I wind down a, a chat, I will ask a musician what's coming up or whatever, a comedian or whoever. You know, often that consists of tour dates or records or whatever. If I ask you what's next for you, Jay, I'm not sure what to expect. <laughs> well, what, what, what's, what are you working on? What's coming up? What is coming up? Well, we're working right now, um, yesterday, today, tomorrow, finishing up a new screen print. Um, it's partial kind of personal reaction to the current political situation mm-hmm. um, I think I decided overnight I'm going to call it let's put our heads together um, and uh, 
so it's got, as you might expect, a bunch of ana a bunch of mammals stuffed into a tree. And I'm sort of oddly undercommitted. It's very unusual for me right now. I've got a corporate illustration that I'm doing, right. which is uh, going to be my next couple of weeks um, for a. I, I, it's for a manufacturer of children's infrastructure, and that's basically all I can say. But that'll be <laughs> uh, a okay. poster design um, that will not be screen printed. So, sort of corporate gigs like that happen periodically, and mm-hmm. um, uh, I've got a list of uh, started sort of art print concepts that I've started that we have not that we have yet to get to um and uh, a couple painting commissions to finish up and i've got a couple of yeah nothing 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 major at the moment um that's uh, like a, a a band poster that, that uh that i've committed to at the moment that's not already been finished do you foresee a, a fourth volume of your work i do i think that um i'm sort of aware that coming up in another handful of years, I'll be 25 years of making posters. Um, my first print was in 95. Um, so I'm wondering if we shouldn't think ahead to a, a larger book. These three books that have come out, uh, 2005's 100 Posters, 134 Squirrels, um, the 2009 book, which is called Animals and Objects in and Out of Water, and this new one, which is called No One Told Me Not to Do This, they've all been basically um, uh, perfect bound soft cover you know $21 books mm-hmm. that um, sort of collect my favorite posters that I've made in the preceding years so the first one the first book sorry uh, was my favorite hundred posters from the first 10 years of making this kind of work the second one was I don't remember exactly but about 120 posters my favorite ones from the years 2005 to 2009. This new one has about 200 of my favorite posters from the last seven years. Yeah. And um, I could see something that's more complete, like a everything I've done kind of book, um, something that's a larger coffee table book or something like that. But I have no grand plans to change what I'm doing, so I would imagine if there's not a big coffee table book then you know another four or five years down the line we'll have the next volume of these uh books that are sized to sit on top of the toilet tank um, <laughs> right still be able to put the I, lid up so. i guess that's something you have to reconcile as you send a book out into the world this is going to potentially end up beside a toilet yeah or you know wedged between some couch cushions right um yeah, it's uh, and it's funny to see where they where they do end up. So. <laughs> well, they're all remarkable, and your work is remarkable. People can learn more about it at uh, thebirdmachine.com. Is that the best place? That's the best place. Yes, thebirdmachine.com. Oh. Thebirdmachine.com. Well, Jay, like I say, I've got some prints of yours in my house, and uh, and I'm a big fan, and uh, your work is remarkable to me so thank you for this time I I hope you enjoyed our conversation best of luck with everything and uh, I hope we speak again thank you very much thanks for your time thanks for the call
This 299th episode of Creative Control with Vish Kano is brought to you by The Bookshelf, an independently owned bookstore, bar, music venue, movie theater, and restaurant located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. For more information about their hours, listings, blogs, directions, accessibility, and to order books from their online store from anywhere in the world, please visit bookshelf.ca. Also, thanks to Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. You can find them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph or trocaderoguelph.ca. Call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. You know, Pizza Trocadero came into my life in some ways or became part of this podcast because Phil saw my poster of Fugazi and Shellac at the Congress Theater that Jay made. And he saw that and his face lit up because he loves Fugazi. They meant a lot to him. He's from Serbia and he would he would see I think he saw them there. I don't know. Anyway, loved Fugazi, so that's a weird thing. Also, Planet Bean Coffee. Thanks to Planet Bean Coffee. Amazing, freshly roasted, fair trade, certified organic coffee. You can learn more about them. They have three locations in Guelph and they're wonderful. Go to planetbeancoffee.com. Uh, as I say, 299th episode of Creative Control, you can learn more about it, and I urge you to go to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to Creative Control, please, and tell your friends to do the same if they like the show. You can also listen to it via audioboom.com, and every episode is available on my website at bishkana.com. You can also go to patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to the program to keep the podcast going. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Vish Creative, and you can listen to a version of this show every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time at CFRU.ca around the world, or if you're in the area, at CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I hope you will listen to more episodes, and I hope that I will talk to you soon. Goodbye for now. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.